It is good to be together uh, this morning. What a, did I tell you? Sweet time together to worship. Wouldn't that be sweet? I don't know if I told you that, but I sensed it was going to be, you know, uh, just to gather with the saints to praise the Lord. You were created to give praise to the Lord. And so when you gather with the saints and you sincerely do that, your heart is drawn together with that group of people that are around you to what you were created to do. And, and that's why it resonates so much with you when you do it. And you, you're blessed by it, as, as I certainly was. And so uh, praise the Lord for that, how important it is for us to be able to gather together in, in this kind of a way uh, and do that, whether we're here in the room or we're not in the room but just to know that we're with others that are doing that. You can please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1, where we will continue our study. This will be now our second week uh, in the book of Acts, uh, and it'll probably take us 50 weeks. I, I would have to suspect that this, certainly at this pace, um, I, I don't anticipate we'll finish the book of Acts, uh, the first chapter of the book of Acts today. So at this pace, three, chapter, three times for each chapter, times 28, that's a lot, 90 weeks almost. Uh, so that's cool. Um, it, it's good stuff. So let's pray. Father, uh, open up our eyes and give us understanding. Lord, we thank you that this is not some history book that we're looking back at and uh, kind of being intrigued by and interested by. But these are your words of life. They're alive, they're living, they're active. And Lord, they have the ability, they're sharp, so they have the ability to cut down in to the deep places of our hearts where we need to be cut. Lord, like a surgeon's knife. And so bless your word this morning that it might do what it was designed to do, use it in the lives of this church and us individually, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we left off at verse 5, so today we're going to obviously pick up with verse 6. But I'll remind you that during our last meeting, I gave a real lengthy introduction. My son, he, he mentioned that to me when I got home. That was a lengthy introduction, about 30 minutes or so. And that, that tends to happen with the, the first study of a new book together. But after that lengthy introduction, we saw in verse 3 that it said, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering, after the crucifixion, by many proofs, according to them during 40, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And so what we discussed in our last time together was the way in which the resurrection of Jesus Christ was proven to those early disciples, and not just a few of them, not just a couple of ladies that were at the tomb, not just the apostles, uh, that he appeared to, but we saw over 500 people or so in one instance Jesus appeared to over a period of 40 days. And then we saw that he, and we will see today, that he ascended into heaven. And I pointed out how often I look at these passages and I think, like, okay, so he died on Friday, he rose again on Sunday, and he ascended on Monday, Tuesday, something like that. The reality is it was 40 days later so for a period of 40 days, Jesus was appearing and then disappearing from his disciples, teaching them, as it says, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Verse 6 is where we pick up. And it reveals to us one of the things, many things perhaps, that Jesus was speaking to them about. Now remember how Jesus taught. We were in the book of Mark not too long ago, and we saw that many of the times Jesus would bring up a topic. I'm glad you all are here. I wanted to talk to you about something, and he would bring it up. But most of the time, they would ask him a question, and he would respond to that question by teaching them. And that's what happens here in verse 6. We read, it says, And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will, he, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They asked him a question. And so Jesus is going to respond to that question. He's going to teach them in response to that question. He says to them, they say, Lord, will you restore the kingdom at this time? Let's read the whole encounter, verse 6. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus had instructed them 
about going back to Jerusalem before, that we're going to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit there. Now, the next thing we see that they do is inquire, all right, well, when will the kingdom be restored? When will the restoration of the kingdom of Israel be? Kind of seems incongruent, doesn't it? Like, so we saw Jesus talking about his crucifixion in the Gospels, and then they say, well, you know, can I sit on your right side or your left side? And you're like, no, you're not, you're not with me. Jesus said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. Okay, all right, Lord, we'll do that. When will the kingdom be restored? Doesn't seem like we're on the same page here if we look at it at face value, but I think there is a logic to their thinking. A lot of times when I, I'm trying to figure out where somebody is going with something, I try to sort of track back, like, okay, how did they get to that particular point? Sometimes I'm talking with my wife. She'll do this with me, actually. And I'll say something, and she'll be like, were we talking about that? How did you get to that particular place? And then you kind of trace back. You're like, okay, that's logical. You were in the conversation. Your mind just went a different place from where my mind went. And so I think there's actually some um, logic to how they get to from this go wait for the Holy Spirit to when will the kingdom be restored. First off this, the restoration of Israel, the glorious reign of the Messiah on the earth, the restoration of Israel that they speak of is the same thing that they had bring, been bringing up over and over and over again in the Gospels. You remember? Regularly, they asked that particular question, seemingly in the midst of all of their circumstances. When's the kingdom coming? And so should it surprise us that they ask it once more? Well, they do. Because again, remember, in their mind, messiahship meant earthly rulership in their day. And if Jesus was the messiah, well then, when's it going to happen? And so in that sense, it's somewhat of a logical um, place for them to go. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, especially after the resurrection. And so, of course, he's going to set up his kingdom. Secondly, Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. One of the most famous passages about the glorious kingdom is found in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. One of the most well-known Old Testament passages to the Jewish people. Peter would actually quote that passage uh, on the day of Pentecost, his first sermon. Opens his mouth, these are the words that come forth. It's what he'd been thinking about, meditating on God had been putting on his heart. And Joel chapter 2 verse 28, it speaks about the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. This is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel, the coming of the Holy Spirit, your Young men will receive visions, your old men will dream dreams, and your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that's what you're seeing here in front of us. You continue to read the Joel passage, and it goes on to talk about the glorious kingdom that the Messiah will reign over. So it's logical in so many ways that they would come to that conclusion that we're moving toward that. A third one, Jesus just 40 days earlier, 50 days earlier, had spoken about the new covenant. The new covenant that would be in his blood. You remember, he, he took the Passover meal and he essentially, he converted it to what we would call the communion service, that last supper. And there in that particular meal, he says, this is my body which will be broken for you. This is my blood which will be poured out for you. And then he spoke about it being in the, the new covenant in his blood. Well, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where the new covenant is associated with the glorious reign of the Messiah. Some of those you can look up on your own. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 37. All of those speak of the new covenant and the glorious reign of the Messiah, the son of David. And so again, it's logical that they would ask this particular question. So I, I'm, you may not even be thinking the things that I'm thinking, but there's a part of me that is like, can you believe these disciples? But as I go back and I sort of trace their line of thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, I see where they got there. And I'm the one who needs to be corrected. And all of you, Amen. disciples, they don't fully get this plan. The Apostle Paul calls the church age, these last 2,000 years uh, of history, as a mystery. And so it was a mystery to them. We don't even fully understand why doesn't just Jesus end the whole thing here. And it was a mystery to these folks here. And so they still don't get it. They, they ask the Lord about these things. They will fully come to understand at Pentecost, as you'll see in their preaching, both on that day and the subsequent days to follow. All right, so uh, that is that. Now, notice this also, though, 
What does this say about these disciples? The fact that they're asking, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Whether this, the question should have been asked or not, whether they should have understood by now or not. Notice what it says, though, about, the king, about uh, these disciples. Because these disciples, you remember a few weeks earlier after Jesus had died, there were the two disciples that were walking outside of Jerusalem to, on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes up on them. They don't know it's Jesus. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, you know, the things that happened in Jerusalem. He said, what things happened in Jerusalem? And they're like, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? He says, explain it to me. And so they start explaining it to him about Jesus. And it says that we had hoped he was the Christ. I think more properly, it says we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice that letter D in the word hoped. The dream died when Jesus died, in their thinking during that time between the cross and the resurrection. And yet here now are all of these disciples that are saying, are you going to now set up your kingdom? So they had gone from this place of defeat to this place of victory in their thinking. And that is certainly something commendable of them. They know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus will do. They're just not sure when he is going to do what he is going to do. And so they ask him about it, but they're supremely confident in the lordship of Christ. When are you going to set up your kingdom? Now, Jesus responds in verse 7, and he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know times or seasons. His question, or his answer, I mean, essentially warns them that that's not your responsibility to know those things. That's the Father's responsibility, and the Father's responsibility alone, it's of his authority to know when these things are going to come to an end. Now, Jesus doesn't say it's never going to happen. So he doesn't say, look, you're still misunderstanding. There's no such thing as an earthly kingdom. It's all spiritual. It's all heavenly. It's all in your heart. I'm not going to come back and rule on this earth. You're going to come with me to heaven. He doesn't say that. They're right in their understanding that there will be an earthly kingdom someday. The Bible teaches that, and it teaches it very, very clearly. Lots of places, not just like some obscure passage where, well, it could mean that, but it might mean something else. It's very clear about it. So he doesn't rebuke them for misunderstanding that reality. Essentially, he kind of rebukes them for saying, look, it's not for you to worry about that right now. And then he's going to give them, he said, this is what you should be worrying about. This is what you need to be thinking about and considering. You don't need to know when I'm coming back and setting up my kingdom. You need to know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to be a witness for me of your kingdom. And he'll go on in verse 8, and he'll say that. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what you need to know. That's the immediate task that you need to be responsible for, these disciples. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming power of the Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses. We need to do that as well. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the days in which we live, for the time that we are here individually, as a body of believers, for the time that we are here, we need to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit that we might be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. That's what they need to know, and that's what their primary focus needs to be. And so while it was not for them to know the time when the kingdom will be set up, there was something they could know, and that was the power of the Holy Spirit. So we might summarize Jesus' words this way. Look, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. You have other work to do. You have other work to focus in on. Again, in verse 8, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He directs their attention to what is more immediate, which is the nature and sphere of their mission. What is your mission as a Christian? You may have, you know, smaller, right now it's getting these kids to school on time, or it's getting them raised and, you know, on their way out of their home into their lives. You know, that's your particular calling and what you're kind of dealing with. But all of us as Christians have a, a larger mission, the same mission. 
which is to advance the kingdom of God on this earth, one soul at a time. That is, we are to be his witnesses. And that's what Jesus tells them they're to focus on, not the when, but the what, which is the proclaiming of the message that he has given them to proclaim. We might call this the missionary mandate of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is different from many other faiths, religions in the world. A lot of other religions in the world, they don't actually care if you become a part of their religion or not. You want to believe what I believe? Great. If not, that's fine. There are some religions in the world that they want more people to believe so that they can have more power, earthly power. Look how large of an organization that we are. But as far as your soul is concerned, that's not their primary interest. And you can read their material where they'll essentially communicate that. The Christian faith is different. Our faith is a missionary faith. It's an evangelistic faith. We have been instructed by our founder to go out and share the faith and to bring as many people as we can with us into the kingdom of God. That's the instruction that has been placed upon us. We are to broadcast our faith with the intent of bringing others in. Their job, the disciples, our job as disciples, is not to establish an earthly kingdom. Will this be the time you set up your kingdom, Lord? It was to be witnesses in the world as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we see it was to begin in Jerusalem, and then it would expand outward from there. That's where it, they would receive the Holy Spirit. So it's going to begin where they're at at that moment. And it would expand outward from there, kind of like ripples in a pond, getting wider and wider and wider and wider, until eventually, as he says there, it would go to the ends of the earth. Now, from a human standpoint, how is this group of people going to accomplish that? How's a group of 11 guys that just 40 days ago was running and hiding and locking themselves away? I mean, this isn't like, look, you 40 guys can do anything together. Or excuse me, you 11 guys can do anything together. This is a group of guys that were hiding in fear just a few days back or weeks back. So from a human standpoint, how is this small little group of men and some women, how are they going to accomplish this? Taking this message to the ends of the earth. Well, the answer is there for us. Verse 8, they will do it with a power that they had never known before. But you will receive power, it says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's a power beyond anything that they had ever experienced. It's a power of the Holy Spirit or the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. Now, some ask the question, is that a command or is that a prediction? Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power to be my witnesses. Is that a command or is that a prediction of what is going to happen? And I think in the context of this passage, it's a prediction. In the context of the scriptures as a whole, we see that it's also a command. Jesus commissioned his disciples, we call it the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, teaching them baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mark said it this way. He said, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. And that's a commission to each one of us. That's a command to each one of us to be a witness. And so it is our responsibility to share the faith with others, to tell others who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and the impact that that can have on a person's soul and on their destiny, their eternity. That's our responsibility each of, uh, for each of us. And any church that is not witnessing is not fully obeying that command. And so it's very easy for a church to kind of look around. And you're like, okay, I like this group. I'm, I'm content with this group. I don't want to see any more. Because more people will come in and they'll just sort of mess the whole thing up. And we don't want that. Or maybe we're thinking, there's a few we could get out. And we'll bring a few new ones in. But, you know, we, we like where we're at. A church needs to continually be busy about sharing the kingdom of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do lots of outreach programs. Do they work? Sure, they work. We have crusades. We can bring people to them. Do they work? Nobody? Yeah, sure, they work. Absolutely. But the means by which witnessing, I think, is most effective 
is when one person shares with another person at their place of business or in their neighborhood or at, around the family table, maybe the extended family table or the guy who lives down the street or when you go out to do the work of the ministry. And you communicate with those particular individuals the hope that you have within you. That should be the mission of the church, and it should be each one of our mission. We gather together here, and I encourage you, bring people here to hear the gospel. We'll share it with them. I think it's important to bring people into a setting like this because they just begin to sort of look around. Unbelievers I'm talking about. And they look around, and they're like, why are all these people fascinated by this guy talking about this book from all this time that they would be sitting here and paying attention to him on a Sunday morning? And they begin to wonder, and they begin to think, and then the word begins to enter in. And then they're somewhere else and they begin to think about these things and ponder these things. And God, by his Holy Spirit, does a work of bringing them to himself. So I encourage you to bring people here. But I want to encourage you even more so. Be sharing your faith. I don't know what to say. Learn what to say. And the idea of being a witness. You don't have to be something like, if you were a witness in a court case, just tell us what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced. Be open, be honest with what's going on in your life as you share that with another person. All right, so we're commanded. It's the mission of us at a church. But in this passage, I don't think that Jesus is presenting a command to them. I think he's, he is presenting them essentially with a prophecy or a prediction that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will be my witnesses. There's a tense in the original language, which is significant. I don't think we necessarily need to know original languages or study folks that have read original languages so that we can understand our Bibles. I think God has given us his word and his Holy Spirit to illuminate his word that all of us can come to it. But it is helpful to go back into those uh, Strong's uh, explanations of the Greek language and those things. And this is a helpful instance because this is originally written in what is called the indicative tense or the imperative uh, tense. It's a command um, here, or it's not in that particular tense. It's not a command. So what he is saying is this is what's going to happen. Imperative would be a command. Indicative is this is what's going to happen. And so he says, you will be my witnesses. So he's not recommending it. He's not commanding it. He's saying this is what's going to go down. In a very natural, supernatural way, because they have been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, God was going to work through them to testify of his truth to the world. And he continues to do that in our lives as well. As we'll see when we study this book of Acts. Now remember, the book of Acts covers a period of about 30 years time. And so sometimes we think, man, look at all these amazing things that are going on You know, in that year. It's over a period of 30 years that these amazing things are taking place. In the book of Acts, we're going to see on 14 different occasions the expression or something like the expression, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And in each one of those instances where we see that particular occasion, I'll try and remember to point them out as we do so. But on each one of those occasions, we see that accompanying that filling with the Holy Spirit was an empowerment to effectively testify of who Christ is and what Christ has done in their lives. And so one of the evidences of the filling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his children is testifying to God's goodness and God's grace. That is of being a witness. And so Jesus says here, very naturally, but in a supernatural way, you will be my witnesses. So if you want to be a witness for Jesus Christ, what do you need to be? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Filled by the Holy Spirit. If you want to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer for me. And I hope it's your prayer for yourself. And it's my prayer for us as a church. Is that we would be a people that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That when we get into a chat with our neighbor, God uses it to testify of who Jesus is. And when we go to our repair guy and we throw down a thousand bucks, that God would use that to advance the kingdom, wherever we go, in our classrooms and all the like. You can insert your own example. Let's go on in verse 8. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria 
and even to the ends of the earth. That's God's plan for the evangelization of the world. They were to start in Jerusalem, the place where the Holy Spirit would first come upon them. Then, when they had told it there in Jerusalem, they were to go to the surrounding country, which was the area of Judea and the area of Samaria, before eventually they would make their way all the way to the ends of the earth. And interestingly, that forms sort of the outline of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through about chapter 7, we see ministry taking place in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 through about chapter 12 to Judea and Samaria. And chapter 13 to the end of the book, we see it going forth to the ends of the earth. This ever-widening circle of witness. Let's look at them. Jerusalem. Now, if Jesus told these guys here, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, they might think, Jerusalem. Those people in Jerusalem, they're crazy. They killed Jesus there in Jerusalem. They tried to capture the rest of us there in Jerusalem. We had to run for our lives. You want me to go there? And yet we see the Lord calls them to go there to be a witness. Now, you might look at Judea and Samaria, especially this idea of Samaria. The Jewish people in that day did not like the people of Samaria. And the people of Samaria didn't like the people that were Jewish in that time either. And yet Jesus was calling them to go to that place. There was a great divide between the Jews and the Samaritans at that time. And yet Jesus says that he calls them to be a witness there. The ends of the earth. Well, perhaps they would think, what do I have in common with the people of the ends of the earth? Why would I go there and talk to them? Why would they listen to me? when I go to those particular places. I think they could have, or have, if they wanted to, talked themselves out of these callings. I can't go to Jerusalem. Those people are nuts. I can't go to the ends of the earth. No one's going to listen to me. They could have talked themselves out of these things, and yet Jesus calls them to witness in those places. Despite whatever reasons they could have raised, Jesus says he will empower them for that task. And he promises them by his Holy Spirit that he will do so. Here's a good word for today. He promises you by his Holy Spirit that he will empower you also to be his witnesses. So what's your Jerusalem? Your Jerusalem is where you are right now. That's your Jerusalem. For us as a church, it's Mercer County, it's Bucks County, northern portions of Burlington, southern portions of Hunterdon. This is who we're called to minister to. This is our primary focus as a body of believers. This is our Jerusalem. We want to reach our Jerusalem. For you as an individual, your Jerusalem might be your home and the people that you're involved with there in your home. It's your neighborhood. It's your extended family. It's the people that you work with and your friends. That's your Jerusalem that God has called you to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and most importantly, empowered you to reach with the gospel. For many of us, Jerusalem is the hardest place. I don't want to talk to people I know because when I come back into work tomorrow, they're going to be looking at me and thinking I'm the weird guy. And when I see them talking with somebody else, they could be talking about anything, but I'm going to be convinced they're talking about me, the weird guy. And so I'll gladly go to Nepal or Kenya or somewhere else in the world and tell those people, but I don't want to have to tell the people that are right around me. And so, Lord, I'm going to put aside that command, and I promise I'll focus extra hard on the other ones. Jesus says you're to be a witness in Jerusalem. He says Judea and Samaria. Again, the circle gets a little bit wider. And for many of us, it's a little more discomforting even still. Again, some of us, I'll go anywhere else but my, my next-door neighbor. But some of us are like, okay, cool, got that, that's fine, but I don't want to go anywhere else. That involves getting plane tickets and taking off work and, you know, these kinds of things, and we're not interested in that. But also, when you have to go to Judea, when you have to go to Samaria, I don't think it's just a distance thing. I think it's a people that you are distanced from. And so for old people... We're going to go down to the boardwalk, and we're going to talk to a bunch of kids. Nah, that's not for me. I don't like talking to kids. They're snotty. They think they know everything. They're, like, mocking me the whole time. I just want to put them in their place. 
Or maybe we give the kids a lot of credit. And we think, you know what? Not me, not an old guy. Get a young guy. Get a young gal to go in there that can relate, that can understand, that can be hip and talk to them, and they're going to respect them. That's not for me. Or it could be something like those people. And so those people that might be of a different race that you don't want to talk to, or maybe they're of a different socioeconomic status, and I don't want to be pounding around with them. I want to be called to reach the people that are just like me, good-looking people. That's who I want to be called to go reach. I jest, of course. We say, Lord, I'll take the gospel anywhere but there. Or maybe we say something, look, I don't have the ability to connect with those folks. I think another area that, that gives me pause a lot of times are people that I think are smarter than I am, like significantly smarter than I am. And I'm like, well, how will I be able to relate to them? I'll send them an apologetics video. That's what I'll do. I'll, I'll let somebody else witness to them. Or I'll bring an apologist in and let him or her, they can come and share and convince my friend here. So who are those individuals in your life? Think about them. And if there's a hesitancy to go to talk to them, may I suggest that's an indicator you're relying on yourself instead of the power of the Holy Spirit to reach those people for Christ. He says, even the ends of the earth. And me? Little old me? Going to the ends of the earth? Isn't that for like, like real good Christians? Even little old you. You know, I think of the fact, I feel as if I went to the ends of the earth. Were you on that trip, Dan? That one where we climbed up the mountain? Um, we, listen, we got in a, a plane, and we flew for like 17 hours, got on another one that I'm not sure was a plane, but it flew for like five hours. Then we got in a little bus thing, and then we drove for like four hours, and we got out of that bus thing into like a Jeep, and we drove another like six hours up this mountain, over through this river. Then we got out of that, and we're like, where's it at? And he said, you got to walk up that hill. And Kevin had like a diabetic sugar thing, and he fell down, and we're like, what is going on here? And so we climbed up this hill and went around these bushes, and there's this little rock church. And that's where we would stay for the next week, the, the four guys that I was with. That was the ends of the earth. And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, what am I doing here? There's got to be people that are better equipped for this particular task. And yet the Lord said, look, if you make yourself available, I'll take you. And I'll bring you where you need to go. And I'll use you how I want to use you. And so even little old you. So what's your Jerusalem? What's your Samaria? Who are those people you don't really want to go talk to? Or they'll never listen to you? Are you willing to be available in all of those places? Because God, I think, will take you to the end of the earth. And in my case, literally, it felt like he took me there to the end of the earth. All right, now maybe you're sitting here you're thinking, all right, you convinced me. I'm ready to be a witness. What do I need to do? How do I get this Holy Spirit that you're talking about here? Well, Jesus told us how we get the Holy Spirit. He said, all you have to do is ask. That's it. I was waiting for people to say, give lots of money or go to a seminary or, you know, do something. And then he'll give me the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. He says, if then you who are evil. That's a nice intro. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father, how much more will he give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to those of you who ask him? So your responsibility is not to earn the Holy Spirit. Your responsibility is to ask for the Holy Spirit. God, I want to be a witness. I want to be the person that is used to reach people that I work with and to reach my extended family and to go across the street to that person that looks different from me, acts different from me, and be an effective witness for that person. I want to be that person, but I don't have it in myself to do it. Jesus says, ask. Ask this question, things like this, Lord, would you empower me today to be your witness? I think that is a great prayer to pray every morning. You get up, some people before they even get out of bed, others before they get out of the bathroom, then they can think a little more clearly, others before they get their coffee cup. 
But sometime in the beginning of your day, maybe you sit with your Bible or a little devotional book of some sort just to sort of get yourself ready for the day to say, Lord, would you empower me today to be a witness for you? Would you empower me? I think as students, you go into, when you walk into a classroom, do you guys still do that? Do you go to classes anymore? Probably not. Now, when you get on Zoom or whatever, somehow, you say, Lord, allow me to be a witness to you in this particular class setting today. That's the kind of prayer that God honors. Sure. You want to be that? Sure. Let's do it. Again, it's our responsibility to ask. So this is what they're supposed to wait for, this initial empowering experience of the Holy Spirit. Going back to our text, look at verse 9. It says, now when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Oh, this is unusual. And a cloud took him out of their sight. It's unusual. It never happened before. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We, we looked at this. We referenced it last week. This is the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's not something that happens all the time. Uh, it happened in this particular instance. Prior to this, during the 40-day period of time, Jesus was uh, appearing and disappearing. So you remember, again, with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, he comes up walking alongside of them. They talk. They begin to share a meal with one another. He breaks the bread. I don't know if he lifted his hands. They saw the holes in his hands, his wrists, whatever. And they're like, that's the Lord. And he was gone. And, that, and that's what he did. He appeared, and then he disappeared. Here, however, is something completely different. This is his ascension. He is lifted up from them, from the earth, and they stand there watching them go. I, I kept thinking of a little kid who watches his balloon disappear. And it just goes and goes and goes. And they're watching and watching and watching until finally it disappears out of their sight. That's what these disciples are doing here. I also imagine their head is going up and their mouth is dropping as they're sort of watching this thing. And then as it says in the particular verse here, it says that two men came alongside of them and said, what are you doing? Why do you stand here looking up? kind of brings them back into the reality of what's going on down here on the earth. Jesus was taken away from them. Now, Jesus was no, and this is different for a reason, I think. I think if Jesus had just disappeared as he had been during the 40 days period of time, they would keep looking, be looking for him. Like, where's he at? Is he going to pop up in here again? And they sort of wondering, like, how come he hasn't been here for like a week? Or two weeks or a year. What is going on? Did he die? Did some, you know, and, but no, I watched him go. He was lifted up from the earth. Now I imagine some of them, after you know, it all kind of set in and they were, all right, I get what's going on now. Some of them are probably like, that stinks. Jesus isn't going to be with us anymore. So if you had a choice to have the type of relationship you have now with the Lord or to be able to physically sit in his presence, hear him teach, share a meal with him, like which of those would you choose? Probably the physical one, right? You're all spiritual. No, I just love God, what he's doing. Yeah, most of us, how cool would it be to be able to sit and have a meal with him and hear him teach and ask him questions? You know, of course, that's what we think. But you remember what Jesus said. He was talking to his father, the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, and he said this. He says, I'm going to him excuse me, this is John 16, right before the prayer. I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He said, I'm, I'm leaving. Sorrow has filled your heart. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. That's his important phrase. So Jesus says, say, hey, listen, look, in my opinion, this is going to be a lot better. He says, look, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so whereas we can all sit here and say, yeah, I would love to sit in his presence, and that makes a lot of sense, Jesus has already informed these disciples, it's actually better for you that I go away. It's actually to your advantage that I go away. Imagine if there were, how many believers on the earth? Let's say two billion believers today on the earth. I don't know if that number is accurate or not. I'm just kind of guesstimating a number. 
If there's two billion believers on the earth and we all had to go to Israel and crowd around Jesus to hear from him and to hear him teach us and minister to us in our hearts, you think you'd get frustrated pretty quickly? You probably would. I used to go to Calvary Philly back when they were in the mall and I think they violated every fire code possible. They had 700 of us in a room a little bit bigger than this room. Uh, maybe a little longer than this particular room. I think it literally had like 10 rows from the stage to the back wall, and I went that way for a mile uh, or so. And you would, you'd walk like this when you leave, because that's all you could, you were cattle in this place. And the Holy Spirit would come, he'd minister to you during the teaching, and he'd be gone on the exit out, because you'd be so frustrated by the crowd that was there. And so uh, it is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit has entered in. And Jesus said that would be the case. And so here are these disciples. They stand there. They're gazing up into heaven, mouth wide open. The, the two men, some, most people think they're angels. There are some that think it's Moses and Elijah. I think it's angels here. And these two men says, this Je say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus had told them what it was they were to do. And these two men come along. Why are you standing here looking up into heaven this way? You got work to do. You're supposed to get back to Jerusalem and wait. The same, and then they say the same Jesus that went to heaven in this way for all that were there to see is going to come back as well in the same way. And so interesting, what we see here is what the Holy Spirit does through these angels, that if they are angels or these two men, that are there is links the coming of the Holy Spirit with the return of Jesus Christ. The empowerment to go and witness with the return of Jesus Christ. What, what is our mission here on the earth? It's to occupy until he comes. Everything is with an eye on that essentially. He's going to come, the days are short, we must witness. And we must bring others in as the Lord allows us to. Verse 12 goes on, they obey. Look, they return to Jerusalem. It says, so they return to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And they were Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus's brothers. Now, we're going to go back and look at some of these verses next week, um, because I don't think we can really do justice to all that is included in the material. But I want to look at just a couple of things in here. If, if you're reading, you're like, hey, you missed some key stuff. We're probably going to hit them next week together. First, we see that he's at this mount that is called Olivet. We call that the Mount of Olives. You're familiar with it, no doubt. Mount of Olives is located just outside of Jerusalem. It, it speaks here about this idea of a Sabbath day journey. That was about a third of a mile, and that's how far the Mount of Olives is uh, from the center area there of Jerusalem. From this, we learn, and from other places in the scriptures as well, that when Jesus returns, he will set himself up on the Mount of Olives. And from there, that's where his return will be. So the very same place which he departed from will be the place that he returns to. Talks about in the scripture, the Mount of Olives being split in two and water flowing from the temple, all these things. And you can read about that. But in the meantime, they're to go back to Jerusalem and they are to wait. And as I said last week, we don't like to wait. Waiting seems like a waste of time. I think it especially seems like a waste of time in the days in which we live. You ever get frustrated with your microwave for not taking too long? It happened to me yesterday. Come on, man, I got things to do today. Can't be standing here for 45 seconds. I got things I got to be doing. Do you remember the old dial-up internet? I was with a computer yesterday. I was with like we're pals. I, like I, I was with an old computer plugged into a phone line and only imagining that sound. Remember that sound? Ding, 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 or whatever. I don't know what it did. It did something like that. Now we're playing. But, and then you would have to wait. And I'm going to come back on the internet in 10 minutes, you know, and I'll be there. Remember those days? 
and we get so frustrated with waiting. We live in a culture, you really don't have to wait for a lot of things. And so we don't like waiting. We think we're wasting our time when we're waiting. We think there's better things to be doing when we are waiting. But the waiting we will discover was an important time for these disciples, and it's an important time for you and I. Maybe not waiting for the microwave, but waiting on the Lord to do what it is you think that he is moving to do and waiting for him to do it is hard for us. But as we'll see with these disciples, it could be a good thing for them because it was a time for them, among other things, to practice obedience. Jesus told them to wait, and that's what they went and they did. As we'll learn next week, they ended up waiting 10 days. That's a long time. 10 days. You want me to wait? I don't even live in this town. I'm going to wait here for 10 days? Well, that's what he told them to do, and that's what they ended up doing. I have to imagine at least one or more of them thought or said, how long are we going to do this? When are we getting out of here? How long do we have to sit here and wait like this? Are we all sure we heard what he said? Did we misunderstand? You know, of course, there must be something else going on that he has forgotten us here this time. So they didn't know how long they should wait. But what they did know was that they should wait. And I think that's an important point for us because there are situations in our lives where we know what we're to do, but we don't fully know why we are doing it. Why am I waiting all this time, Lord? What is going on here? We know what we are to do, but we don't necessarily know why we are to do it. And it's in those instances that we can learn the most about obedience when we don't fully understand what the Lord is doing. Again, I've said a lot of times, what we oftentimes want the Lord to do is lay out the plan. I'll look it over, Lord. I'll approve it. And then we can move forward with this. And the Lord just says, just sit there and wait. And we have to sit there and wait. And we learn obedience. We learn trust. All right, Lord, I don't like what's going on here, but I trust you. So important when we can't see the why to what we're called to do. I think a lot of us find ourselves in waiting periods. Many of us, were waiting to go home to heaven. Older we get, the more we're longing for it. And this world is nice, and I, you know, I have my kids, my grandkids, and all that. But Lord, how much longer, Lord? When will you take me home? So for some of us, that's what we're waiting. I think of the young couple that's wrestling with the desire to become physically involved with one another. And, and what's that expression you might hear? Well, you know, we're going to get married anyway. And the Lord says, no, I want you to wait. I want you to practice obedience. Is that logical? Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. We're going to get married anyway. But the Lord says, I want you to wait. I think about the young person that is sensing a calling to go into ministry. And maybe they're tempted to make something happen instead of waiting until the Lord causes something to happen, instead of waiting for the Lord's timing. I remember when I graduated college, I didn't get a job for three, four months, five months or so. Spent all this money, go to college, do all this work, get a degree, I should have a job. I didn't get a job. And I remember that waiting period. And finally, I went to this interview. It wasn't really even the job that I wanted, but it turned out to be a job. So I went to this interview, thought I, I had it, didn't get the job. Guy called me up. You're a nice person, but we decided to go a different direction. Oh, okay, thanks. I'm happy for you. And I remember hanging up and thinking, Lord, what is going on? I'm getting older, Lord. I'm 21. You know, what are we doing? Why are we taking so long here? And trying to wait in those instances. You know, all these examples, the kid in school, why am I learning this math? You know, when am I ever going to use this? Just learn the math. It's a waiting, it's a preparing time in your life. And so we find ourselves going through periods in our lives like this where we know what we're to do, be obedient, but we're not sure what's going on. And so that's the first lesson that I think we can learn, a valuable lesson for us regarding this waiting time. And that is this, even though the time might seem to be wasted, learning obedience is never a wasted lesson. Amen? Yeah, you don't like to say amen to that one. You said it because you're obligated. All right, but you know, did your heart say it? <laughs> Probably not so. But especially when we don't understand why God is doing what he's doing, why he's taking so long, we need to learn obedience. Next week when we come together, we're going to learn 
that in addition to learning how to obey, even when it doesn't seem to make sense or we don't fully understand, we're going to learn some of the other things that God was accomplishing during this 10-day period of time that they were to be waiting. So I want to encourage you, uh, be reading ahead. Uh, and so with that, we're going to uh, call our time to a close uh, this morning. Let me pray for us. Why don't we stand while we pray? The worship team is going to make their way back up as well. Lord, you know our tendencies. You know our tendencies better than we know our tendencies. We're, we're just sort of figuring things out still. And so you know, Lord, what's good for us. You know how to minister in every circumstance to us. Lord, you know how if we respond with our hearts open, our hands empty, and say, all right, Lord, here I am, your handmaid, like Mary said, work in me, work through me. Lord, how you respond to that, and you do. And Lord, we're grateful for that. But Father, I, I know for myself how I often will sort of push back against that and fight against that. I want to be in on the planning process. I want to approve the, the final plan before we move forward. And yet, that's just not how it works. And so, Lord, uh, we are reminded then this morning of our need to entrust ourselves to you fully. Knowing that you're good. Knowing that you're powerful. Knowing that you're sovereign. Knowing that you love us and desire good for us. Resting in who you are. So, Father, bless us this week as we seek to do that. I just can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine sort of the impact of a few hundred people in our community just resting in your loving care this week. What good and what impact that could have, Lord, on those that are around us. So bless this community through your children, we ask in Jesus' name.